This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. We have with us Dr. Jessica Stern. She is a clinical psychologist and instructor at NYU. Today we're talking about anxiety. Dr. Stern, thank you for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're talking about anxiety, things that predispose someone to have anxiety and different treatments that someone can undergo to help with anxiety. And this is a very, very common issue. So how would you define anxiety? Sure. So anxiety is basically a set of experiences that are related to emotions or feelings, cognitions, which are thought, as well as oftentimes physiological symptoms, sensations in the bodies, things like heart racing and, and such. And so oftentimes we'll see those things come together, people feeling very nervous in their thinking, also having negative thoughts that are racing and such, and that oftentimes can manifest in the body. How much insight do people have into having anxiety? I think not that much. Anxiety has been making a lot of press these days. A lot of celebrities and athletes and different individuals are coming out and talking about anxiety. So it's something that people are hearing and thinking a lot about. But I think oftentimes in my practice, let's say when I ask people if they're anxious, they'll say things like, I think so, but I'm not really sure. And I think there can be a little bit of confusion about what anxiety means and what it can look like and feel like. So I think there is some confusion out there. So can you clarify that if someone's wondering if they have anxiety, go into a little bit more detail because my guess is that there are a lot of people, some people will know they have anxiety, but there are a lot of people who are not functioning as well as they can, but they just don't know they have anxiety. So they can't obviously then get treatment. Sure. Absolutely. So I think that in terms of, if we think about three categories of symptoms, there are things that you can look for in each category. And some of these might apply to some people and some might not. There's also a range in terms of symptoms and how severe or the types of ways that these can manifest themselves. But in terms of emotions, it's you might feel um, very, very nervous, maybe feeling very agitated, feeling very tense, feeling very scared or fearful. Those are things that can come up. Oftentimes people will be irritable. Maybe they'll be more likely to snap, feel angry. Um, Sadness is something that can come up a lot as well with anxiety. And so sometimes we'll see anxiety and depression come together actually not just sometimes, but very often. Um, And so those are some of the feelings that people might have or the emotions that people might have. Um, Another very, very big and important area of anxiety is the cognitions or the thoughts. So oftentimes you'll have people say, I feel like I can't turn my mind off. My mind is racing. If you find that you're thinking a lot about worst case scenario, or you're trying very often to read people's minds in terms of understanding what they're thinking, did I hurt their feelings? Am I going to do something wrong? Did I fail? those types of things. And so taking a look at your thinking and if your tendency is to think negatively, especially pretty often, that can be an indicator that you might be feeling anxious. Also feeling like you don't have a sense of what your future can look like or feeling like you need to have a complete sense of control, feeling like you can't let go from things 
that can be another indicator that perhaps you might have anxiety. And then in terms of the physical sensation or the things that you might feel in your body, it can be pervasive or it can be sort of based on stimuli. So based on a specific thing that might be happening. So you might feel tension in your body. Muscle tension is probably one of the biggest indicators of anxiety. Feeling, having like you have knots in your stomach or feeling nausea, things like that. Feeling jittery, a lot of that tension in your body that can go throughout those can be things that can also indicate that you might have anxiety. So as a whole, those are a range of symptoms, but different symptoms can be connected to different stimuli or different things that make people anxious more specifically. Now, a lot of those things that you described, just worrying about the future, etc., it seems like those could be a normal response to everyday stresses. Like if you, like say someone lost their job or they're moving or they're getting married or they're having kids or some large life changing event. So how, yeah. do you, how do you differentiate normal, maybe functional anxiety? Because some people I know, they, they function a lot better if they're a little bit on edge, not too much, not too little, but they just have that slight and heightened sense of what's going on versus pathologic or non-helpful anxiety. Absolutely. And it's interesting because there is this concept of the inverted U, which is sort of a peak anxiety. It, it, basically, what you want to think about is there's a sweet spot in the middle where you want to have a little bit of anxiety such that it can propel you to either do things like maybe to run that marathon, or if you're feeling a little bit anxious on an exam, it might be an indicator that you should study perhaps a little bit more. However, excessive amounts of anxiety can be too much. And so the other piece that you're mentioning also is related to stressors. And so if someone is experiencing, you know, very realistic stressors in their lives, like related to job or related to finance or family, it would be very appropriate to be anxious at those times. And oftentimes is an indicator that there's maybe something going wrong or that there's something that you're a little bit worried about or sad about or something like that. So the time where anxiety goes from being healthy or helpful to not so healthy and not so helpful is the time where it's uh, pervasive or it's lingering for a lot longer or where you feel like it's impacting your ability to work efficiently or to engage in relationships efficiently or I'm um, just to sort of sit back and relax and enjoy. So the key is is what we think of as functional impairment. So the time where it starts to impair or impact your functioning and your day-to-day -day routine, that's when anxiety goes from being healthy and helpful to not so healthy and not so helpful. Also, when it goes from being specific to um, or related to specific problems as compared to just this grand um, overall anxiety, Anxiety, that's another indicator that perhaps it's, it's something that's a little bit more excessive. How common is it to have anxiety that it, that's impairing your performance? So the statistic that I think I can give you is, so in terms of anxiety, there are a host of different what we call anxiety disorders. So some of these might be ones that people have heard of or might be familiar with. So for example, panic disorder, agoraphobia, social anxiety disorder, also known as social phobia, generalized anxiety disorder. So each one of those has its own set of symptoms or criteria. Compositely, I would say probably about 18% of the population has some sort of anxiety disorder. This is what the Anxiety and Depression Association of America says. So um, it's fairly common, actually. It's pretty common that some people, that people will have some level of an anxiety disorder. And some people might also have more than one anxiety disorder. So that's, that's pretty common as well. And are there things that, with, as with all things, there is 
a genetic predisposition to having anxiety, but all things being equal, what are some of the things that predispose someone to having anxiety? When I'm talking about predisposed events or like the way they were raised or childhood events or even adolescent events that would facilitate them having anxiety. Yeah. So genetics is, as you mentioned, definitely a big one. So people whose parents have anxiety are more likely to have anxiety themselves. And that can also be learned too. So it's not just genetics. So if people are raised in a household where their parents or those around them are always very, always worrying or find themselves having difficulty relaxing, that can sort of create a vibe or um, an energy in the household that other people can pick up on. However, there are also events and things like that, parenting styles that can impact how someone develops as an adolescent and an adult and things like that. So So one thing is trauma. So trauma can mean lots of different things to different people. There are many different types of trauma. But if someone experiences a traumatic event as a child, that can definitely make them more likely to be anxious in the future because they're basically what anxiety is doing is trying to create this uh, protection that can sometimes become excessive. And so if someone has a traumatic event anxiety is appropriate given that trauma that they may have experienced. However, the anxiety may then generalize to other things that are not related to the trauma or are distantly related to the trauma, such that that person might experience anxiety a little bit more globally. So trauma is one of them. Parenting styles or just ways in which people interact with their family members can definitely impact So something I will often ask people is, what was the attitude towards emotions growing up? So how did people in your family, not just people in your family, but people in your school system, friends, neighbors, things like that, what did people teach you about emotions and how you should respond to them? What oftentimes I will hear is people will say, I was told that emotions are bad, feeling anxious or feeling sad is bad, and that I shouldn't feel that way. So that can be potentially detrimental to a child because if they feel like it's unhealthy for them to be anxious, it can actually create more anxiety because anxiety is a natural emotion that every person should have in some way, shape, or form. And so if someone is being told you shouldn't be anxious, what ends up happening is they dampen that response or they try to dampen that response perhaps unsuccessfully. And that can actually lead to more anxiety because they feel like I don't know how to handle myself and I don't know why I feel this way. So it can kind of stigmatize the emotion. Similarly, or sort of related to that is this idea that not only should you not have negative emotions, but if you do, you won't be able to handle them. And so if a parent or a teacher or a coach says something like, I'll take care of that, don't worry, let me just do that, you can't handle that, or you shouldn't be feeling that way, and it's not okay to cry, and it's not not okay to feel nervous, that teaches a person that they are not capable of managing their emotions, which again, can make more anxiety in the future. And so I think those are sort of two areas that are related to culture and related to interpersonal relationships and things like that, that can lead people to feeling like I'm lost in my anxiety. There's something wrong with me for feeling anxious and I can't handle it. And the I can't handle it piece is really important because if someone feels like they're not able to, or they have low confidence in their ability to handle their emotions, that can just set them up for frustration or difficulty in the future things that I've seen, it seems like there, there are certain cultures or communities that are very concerned with what other families will think of their family. And this, this kind of spans 
socioeconomic pathway where where you have families that are very, very hyper-concerned about people's perception of them. And that seems to perpetuate a lot of anxiety in that household. Yeah, absolutely. I think this idea of how are we going to be perceived can definitely impact the way that people function. And not only that, but also the way people interact in public too. And so sometimes you'll see, you know, if a, if a child or an adolescent or even adult is crying, their parent or their sibling or someone else might say, oh, stop crying get over it. It's not a big deal. Because either they're ashamed of that, they're uh, thinking that other people might judge them for that. And that can be really tricky. And I think it gets complicated with culture too, because different cultures, different societies, things like that have different ways of understanding psychology and emotion. And every culture should be respected, um, but also understanding how we can respect that culture, but also at the same time, how we can foster psychological well-being can be really important. And shunning emotions can be tricky because it can then make someone feel like feeling emotions is a bad thing, which can definitely set someone up for uh, difficulty in the future. And then I just read a study about like healthy childhood affection, like give your kid a hug if they're watching TV and you have like a three-year-old, like you can cuddle with the, t- the child to watch TV. And the study was saying that kids who have healthy adult parent-child affection growing up, they tend to have a lot less anxiety Mm -hmm. versus very cold parents where they're taught to not have any emotion and they just sit very properly and there's no real obvious affection between parents and children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think the reason for that is that affection is very closely related to emotion. And so being able to not just express emotion, but be able to share that emotion with someone else is very, very important. And so it's basically saying, I can show you that I love you. I can show you that I'm connected to you. I can show you that I am attuned to you and your needs. And I'm also going to attune you to my needs emotionally and affectionately is very important and can foster the sense of it's okay for me to feel things. And feeling things is not only a good thing, but it's also good for me to be able to share that. And I think the sharing piece is what's also particularly important. We know that one of the biggest protective factors for social, for different types of anxiety and depression as well is social support. So feeling like you have a sense of connectedness to other people can be huge in helping you feel more well adjusted in terms of anxiety and things like that. And so having a sense of, this person loves me and cares about me and is going to hug me regularly shows that they have someone that they can talk to or open up with or be vulnerable with, which is important. So you, we talked about how there's normal healthy anxiety. Like if you need to study for a test and you have anxiety for the test, you'll probably study for the test. Or if there's black ice on the road, you're probably going to have anxiety so you don't hit something or hit another car. So you're just going to drive a little bit more carefully and really pay attention. But can you talk about unhealthy anxiety and then say the fight or flight response and how that all figures in? Sure. So the fight or flight response, which we now actually think about as fight, flight, or freeze, is basically this system that is ingrained in us that helps protect us. And so the idea is that if we are faced with things that are potentially threatening, that our bodies and our systems psychologically and physiologically need to make a decision of how to engage with that potential threat. So if you think back to when we were cavemen and we were exposed to many very significant potential threatening cues or stimuli 
our bodies needed to make a decision. Do we engage with that lion, let's say, or do we run away with it? And the third option is freeze, which is do nothing. And so that system is very deeply ingrained in the way that we think and the way we operate. And today, in present day, we're not necessarily cavemen and we're not necessarily engaging with lions on a day-to-day basis. However, we are engaging with things that our mind can see as potentially threatening And so what happens in the fight, flight, or freeze response is our body prepares us to either um, tackle the thing that makes us anxious, to run away from the thing that makes us anxious, or to freeze. And what happens is it starts inside the body. It starts with heart racing, sweating, nausea, a lot of other things, muscle tensing. I mean, all of these things can prepare us to either fight or to flight. Now, people will often say, well, I'm not doing things that are going to be that potentially dangerous, or why is public speaking something that should make me feel nauseous? It's not something that is a threat per se. And the idea is that threat sort of expands past the things like the lions and the black ice and things like that to things that can make us feel like there is a potential for something to go wrong too. And the idea is that certain things are appropriate and maybe healthy for us to feel anxious about, but sometimes what happens for people that are a little bit more prone to anxiety, they might have difficulty differentiating between perceived threat and actual threat. And so what is dangerous versus what is actually not so dangerous but feels dangerous to us. I like to think about it in terms of like the smoke detector that we have in our homes and the buildings that we work in is sometimes, so the smoke detector is there for a reason. It's there to protect us and it might go off every once in a while if it perceives threat. But what ends up happening is sometimes the smoke detector can be a little bit too sensitive and it might go off excessively or it might go off when there isn't actually danger in the room. So some people have a slightly more sensitive smoke detector and that's where it can get a little bit difficult for them if their smoke detector is going off so regularly that it's impacting their life. And so I like to think about it that way because it tells us that having a smoke detector is not a bad thing. So having anxiety is not a bad thing. The only time it becomes a bad thing is if it's going off so often that it's stopping you from living your life. So you you touched on something that I I think is really interesting. So for anyone who has a little bit more deeper or wants a deeper understanding of anxiety, can you differentiate or tease out the difference between the fight or flight response and then the freeze response and why someone would say what a fight or flight versus freeze? Because from my understanding, they're, they're different states and people react differently. Yeah, so it depends on the situation. It also depends on the person. Basically, the I think the idea comes down to how do you want to engage with that stimuli or that cue? And some people are more likely to take action that is aligned with fight. Like, I'm going to tackle the situation and I'm going to fight with that cue. Whereas some people will say, I can't manage that. I can't do that. I'm not capable. And then they will go the opposite direction where they'll uh, flee, or that's the flight response. And a lot of that has to do with self-efficacy. And so thinking about how capable you are or perceiving whether or not you're able to manage that response or that cue can, I think, factor into whether you're going to go with one direction or the other direction. Freeze can is just like it sounds. It's like when your body just doesn't know, it's so overstimulated with all of these different cues and these reactions and things like that, that it basically is like, I don't know what to do. And so I'm just going to shut down. And shutting down can look 
different in different people, but oftentimes can feel like disconnection from their outside world, from whatever it is that's making them feel anxious, from whatever it is that they feel like they can or can't respond to. And so that's uh, potentially where freeze can come in. So that's a, that's a piece of it. So would the treatment be different if someone is having a fight or flight response versus a freeze response? And also my another uh, like a tag on question is, can you tell the difference between just being apathetic versus having so much anxiety that you've just frozen? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. So apathy, right. So that is something that happens oftentimes where people will say, I can't really tell what's going on for me. And I can't tell if it's that I don't care or if it's just that I'm so incredibly overwhelmed that I just don't know what to do. And a lot of the times I think also related to your previous question as well is adrenaline. So people oftentimes say that if they're in an anxiety provoking situation, their adrenaline is so high that they're acting and that they don't feel anxious in the moment. But then when they step back, they're like, whoa, that was really anxiety provoking. And, you know, you hear these stories about people who are in car accidents or run into car accidents and they very badly injure a a part of their body and they don't realize it until they walk away. That's because adrenaline is kicked in so high that they don't notice. And the reason that adrenaline is kicked in so high is because it's serving them a purpose of uh, battling that cue or that trigger or that response. But what ends up happening sometimes is that we go the opposite direction, which is flight. And fight is not always the best option. And flight is not always the best option. And sometimes it's some combination of both. Freeze also can be a tricky situation if you feel like you're not taking action. And so what I would say for people is when you're in that moment where you're encountering something that makes you anxious, what did you feel in that moment in your body? What did you here going through your mind. So those thoughts of, I can't handle that, or that something terrible is going to happen from this situation, or what if X, Y, or Z happens? And what was sort of your gut reaction of what you were feeling? And people don't always know. And it can be really, really hard to figure out what you were thinking, what you were feeling in the moment. But oftentimes people will say, I just felt so overwhelmed. And then breaking down that idea of overwhelmed can be really important and can show people that they're probably not apathetic, even if they might think they are. And also whether their tendency or their urge was to run away from the response and to avoid it or to go towards that response and approach it. And so I think kind of taking a look at the data that's going through your mind and your body can be really important and getting a sense of what your urge is can be um, very helpful. So here's, here's a situation that happened to me that I think was very anxiety provoking. And then you can psychoanalyze me if you want to. So I, when I was doing my residency, I was working in the ICU in, and I was in Detroit and there was a multiple shootings. So you, I had a lot of people coming to the intensive care unit because they were shot. So they needed a whole host of things. And then I also had other patients who had a whole host of medical issues going on that were very pressing. And several nurses came to me and just kind of dumped all of these problems on me and said, you need to figure out what to do right now. Have at it. So I, I froze for what felt like forever, but it was probably like a minute or two. And then like I went through the motions. Everyone did really well. But the funny thing is I actually don't remember if I have to think back about it, what I did. It worked. It worked really well. But I definitely remember having a significant amount of anxiety and really just my training kicked in and I just did what I need to do. But I don't remember much of it at all. That's totally common, actually. And something that I, I you know resonated was that you froze after having a whole host of different things come onto your plate. 
Freezing can actually be healthy in some capacities if it allows you to collect yourself in order to make the next best decision that can actually be good. Sort of gives you a moment to collect yourself and to go into action mode. And so freezing in and of itself is actually not necessarily a bad thing as long as it gives you the opportunity to take whatever action is best for you. And maybe that's to approach or to avoid it. It depends on the situation, but that's um, one piece. But then to your other point of not remembering, that's actually very, very common. What happens is when we're angry, anxious, there is so much going through our mind and our body and to the point where we can actually be sort of flooded with emotions and physiological sensations such that we're not actually really encoding memories all that well. And this happens a lot of times with trauma, actually. Trauma is a much more extreme version of feeling flooded and having difficulty remembering things, although trauma can actually be the opposite where your memories are very, very vivid. But if you were sort of going into this action mode and you were thinking about all of these different things that you needed to do in the workplace and how to manage all of these different stressors and problems, your mind and body is going to be in action mode and it's not really going to necessarily be paying attention to what it's doing, but it's acting and your mind is taking you on the path that it needs to take you, but is not necessarily encoding the memories as vividly as it might otherwise, which is probably why you didn't remember what you did. And that's actually pretty common. That's very interesting. So you were talking about there are different subtypes of anxiety. Yeah. So there are different ways. So that, that situation I just described, what, how, would you, would that, well, how would you classify that type of anxiety? So I don't think it's necessarily consistent with any particular anxiety disorder, let's say. That, I think what was going for you, uh, going on for you in that moment was you were presented with a very significant stressor and there was perceived threat, which there may have actually been actual threat. And you were sort of handed over a lot of different decisions to make or judgments to call. And so you had to manage a very stressful situation on the spot in the moment, essentially. Well, the threat would be there were several people that shot, so I had to coordinate them getting blood and supporting their, their blood pressure and heart rate and coordinating a bunch of, just coordinating a lot of very serious things. And in that situation, your perceived threat was actual threat, right? It was real threat. And I also hadn't slept for a very long time because it was on call. So I was up at like four in the morning and this was all happening at two in the morning. Absolutely. Yeah. And so all the more reason for you to feel anxious. And I would say that anxiety was actually very reasonable and very realistic and appropriate at that time. But I can tell you, I did not need coffee in that moment. I'm sure. I'm sure your adrenaline was on high. Yes, it was. Um, yeah. So I would say I, it wasn't inappropriate. I don't think that it was unreasonable for you to feel anxious in that moment. So would um, you call that anxiety or would you just call that a, a normal response? I would say it's both. I don't think, because I think that anxiety, or I know to be that anxiety can be a normal response. Basically, anxiety means when you're nervous about something or worried about something or managing overwhelm or stress or things like that. And so I think you were anxious, but you were appropriately anxious. I was definitely anxious. So, mm -hmm. okay, that's fine. So what are some of the disorders of anxiety or ways that anxiety, manifestations of anxiety? Yeah. So I think prior to thinking about anxiety disorders, there are different stressors that any person can feel anxious towards. So this can be social situations, it can be workplace anxiety, feeling tension with coworkers or bosses or things like that, or feeling nervous about various components of your job. Those are common ones that I hear about. Financial or family stressors, those can be very, very big ones, especially. Also things like environmental triggers. So things like 
public transportation or flying or things like that, or then more specific things that are related to phobias, things like spiders or airplanes or things like that. So there are a lot of things that can make us anxious and some of them might not impact our lives all that much and some of them might impact our lives very much. And then this sort of gets into where the anxiety disorders come about. And there are a variety of different anxiety disorders. So generalized anxiety disorder is one in which people feel anxious about lots of different things or most different things in different capacities of their life to the point where anxiety is so pervasive that it's impacting pretty much everything in your day-to-day functioning. So when people, sorry to interrupt, but when people have general anxiety disorder, how often do they have insight that they have generalized anxiety disorder Or do they think that's just how people are supposed to function? I'd say it's a little bit of both. I think it depends on the person. It depends on how self-aware they are. It depends on how much insight they have. It also depends on how they were raised, I think, because if they're raised in in an environment where anxiety was common, then they might think, oh, everyone's anxious just like me. I think another place that this comes about is how much has it impacted with their life. If they've been able to get through their life fairly well or fairly easily, then they might think, oh, it's not a big deal because I've been able to do everything that I've wanted to do. Whereas other people might say, I have been able to do everything that I want to do, but I have to work that much harder or I have to try really hard to sort of get over the sounds that are going through my mind in terms of the thoughts and things like that. They have to work harder, so that can be tricky. Or if they see people around them who seem very relaxed or a little bit less um, overwhelmed, they might say, you know what, I feel different or I seem different than other people, and I think there's something going on for me. So it depends on the person, I think. Okay, that, uh, yeah, I think that's a very good answer. So beyond general anxiety disorder, what are some of the other manifestations of anxiety you're, you're going to speak about? So social anxiety disorder is another big one. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about social anxiety disorder. A lot of people say, oh, I have social anxiety, but actually social anxiety disorder is a little bit more specific than sometimes people think that it is. And this has to do with having anxious thoughts about being on display to other people or being concerned about being judged by other people. This can come out in a lot of different ways, but people who will avoid social situations because they're really nervous about looking like a certain way or being judged for a certain way or that kind of thing, that that can manifest. And that oftentimes comes up if People are finding that it's hard for them to make relationships, whether that's romantic or platonic, or if they're avoiding certain work obligations because they don't want to give a public speaking gig, or if they don't want to have lunch with their coworkers or things like that. Those are ways that they can manifest themselves. So social anxiety disorder is uh, is one that we will see fairly frequently, I'd say. So that's one. Uh, another one is panic disorder. So this is basically related to the fear of fear and fear of having certain physiological responses in the body. So people will oftentimes say, you know, I just had a panic attack. Panic attack is actually a very specific thing. And it's basically where you think that you're at risk, you think that you're dying, you think that something terrible is going to happen to you. And then you have a whole host of different somatic complaints, or those are things that are happening in your body. So again, heart racing, sweating, uh, feeling upset stomach, things like that. So panic disorders, when you're having a lot of those panic attacks, and there are specific criteria that you'd use to diagnose panic disorder, um, but that can be one as well. So that's another disorder. Those are some key ones. There are other things like separation anxiety disorder, which is a little bit less common. So those are some big ones. And then two big disorders that we see that are 
now technically diagnostically in different categories. So we don't necessarily see them in the same category. They have their own categories, but they're very much related to anxiety disorders are obsessive compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, which are separate from each other, but are two big diagnoses that we see. So that's kind of a range of some of the, the big ones. Can you go into a little bit more detail and really define some basics on what is obsessive compulsive disorder and then what is post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah. So obsessive compulsive disorder OCD. This is something that it's a term that a lot of people misuse, unfortunately. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what it is. And you'll oftentimes people say, oh, I'm so neat, or I color coordinate things. Oh my gosh, I'm OCD. But that's actually not really what OCD is. And OCD is much more substantial than that. And it can be a little bit hard for people with OCD to hear comments like that. Obsessive compulsive disorder is made up of essentially two core components. Um, So you have the obsessions and the compulsions. And so obsessions are thoughts that come into your mind that are very overwhelming and they're repetitive and they're thoughts that upset you or bother you in some way, shape or form. And then in response to the obsessions, your mind wants you to take some sort of action or some sort of behavior like a compulsion. So that's what a compulsion would be, which is basically like uh, a set of behaviors or one particular behavior that if you don't do that compulsion, then it's going to create more anxiety and it's not going to be able to relieve the obsession. So an example, this might be a little bit more extreme, but it's actually fairly common in OCD, is if I don't eat four M&Ms, or if I eat an odd number of M&Ms, then my brother is going to die. And so people will have to eat those four M&Ms or eat an even number of M&Ms. And if they don't, then they're sort of overwhelmed by this thought that their brother is going to die. It can be related to other things like neatness or cleanliness or things like that, or checking behaviors. So checking your front door, checking your stovetop, things like that. But there's a very close relationship between those thoughts and those behaviors. So that's kind of in a nutshell. And there's a lot of subtlety in OCD and lots of different types of ways in which it manifests. But that's kind of an overall gist of it. So that almost reminds me of people who ha- who are obsessively exercising, where like they have to exercise or they think they're going to die in a pathologic way. That can definitely come up for sure. And, and having a sense of what those thoughts look like, like if something terrible you know, is going to happen if they don't exercise, that can be a form of OCD. And there are a lot of other ways in which that can manifest itself. So it can also be potentially... Not to make a generalization, but it can also be related to potentially an eating disorder. And there's actually a lot of overlap between eating disorders and OCD. But yes, you're totally right. That is one way that it can can come up. And can you discuss um, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder? Yes, absolutely. So this is uh, probably one of the biggest areas that I work with and one of my biggest passion areas. So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder is essentially a situation in which someone experiences a traumatic event and there are sort of specific criteria for what this traumatic event counter should look like. And in response to that event, basically people have a variety of different symptoms or struggles that are related to that event and that impact their day-to-day functioning. And so for instance, an event might be something like a sexual assault or it might be combat related or it might be a car accident or it might have been learning about the suicide of a friend or a close person. So any situation in which there was some sort of threat or danger can be those types of traumas. It can also be something like a natural disaster or something like that. 
And what people will oftentimes say or wonder is, well, isn't it normal to be bothered by trauma? Um, And the answer is, yeah, of course. Anyone would be upset if any one of those things happened to them. The time in which it becomes PTSD or disorder is when the effects of that trauma are impacting your life a little bit longer term. And so with PTSD, what we see is if you were to assess for symptoms of PTSD after, like immediately after trauma, pretty much, you know, over 95% of the population would have symptoms of PTSD because it's, a nor- it's normal to be upset and bothered and to have the variety of symptoms that one would have. And so we don't actually diagnose PTSD for a little bit after the trauma because we want to see if those symptoms have subsided. And if people are avoiding things that remind them of their trauma, if they are um, avoiding thinking or talking about the trauma, if they feel like they can't control their thoughts related to the trauma, if it's coming up for them in flashbacks or nightmares or very vivid daytime memories, those are all symptoms of PTSD, feeling very irritable, feeling like there's a disconnection with you socially from other people feeling negative thoughts about yourself or other people related to the trauma. These are all symptoms of, of PTSD. And again, it's, it's not that we're trying to pathologize having a negative reaction to trauma. Rather, it's basically taking a look at when do these symptoms impact your life enough so that you're struggling. And so we've, we've covered a lot of things like the triggers and different types of anxiety. Can you get into some of the treatments for anxiety? So there are a variety of different treatments. As a psychologist, I very much love psychotherapy, and it's, it's what I do in most of my day, day-to-day functioning as a, as a professional. So there are two big treatments that jump out to me that can be really, really effective in treating anxiety. So the first one is cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and this is sort of an umbrella treatment that has lots of different versions. There's actually CBT for chronic pain, which I've done a lot of in the past, and CBT for psychosis and things like that. But sort of the core components of CBT are actually very commonly used for anxiety. And this is basically where you look at the relationship between your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors. So the cognitive part is the thinking part. The behavioral part is the, of course, the behavior, the action. And then sort of embedded in those two things is the emotion. So looking at how those things relate to one another and seeing where you can modify pieces of your functioning. What people oftentimes don't realize is that we can actually change the way our mind processes uh, thoughts. And so what I like to think about is we can actually rewire our thinking, which is a really cool thing. And, and there's been a lot of neuroscience research that shows that it actually changes the brain uh, functioning and anatomy and things like that. Um, and so it can be really impactful. But CBT can be really helpful. It's a short, it can be a very short treatment, which is great. People are oftentimes surprised to see how quickly it can work. So that's a key piece. And then related to the anxiety piece in particular is you're changing behaviors that are related to the anxiety. So if you're avoiding things that make you anxious, you kind of look at which behaviors are you avoiding, which ones are you using instead, and seeing which ones you can change. And then sort of subsumed in cognitive behavioral therapy is this notion of exposure therapy which can be used for things like phobias and other types of things, social anxiety and things like that, which is basically where you look at the things that make you anxious and the things that you're avoiding, and you slowly and systematically teach yourself that through treatments, you're doing it with a therapist, you teach your mind and your body that those things are not quite as dangerous as you think they are, and you slowly start to work your way up to being less anxious of those things. So that's a little bit about what exposure therapy is. So CBT and exposure are one area of treatment that can be really helpful. And then there's another one called acceptance and commitment therapy, which I can talk about as well. 
what are your, how about we just do a quick role? Like it doesn't have to, it's not going to be obviously like very in depth, but a quick role play of, I'll say, I'll pretend that I have significant public speaking anxiety and I'm coming in to see you for the first time. Mm-hmm. So I, I come in and I say, I have, I have to do presentations for work. Speaking in front of groups of people makes me extremely nervous. It's impacting my job performance. If I want a promotion or I want to keep my job, really, I have to get over my fear of speaking in front of other people. And you came highly recommended, Dr. Stern, so I'm here to see you. So what are you going to do? Yeah. So Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about what makes you anxious about public speaking? I get really sweaty when I have to talk in front of a group of people. Okay. And what kinds of crowds or what types of presentations do you find that you get anxious in? If I have to stand up in front of people, I get anxious. Any group of people. Okay. So small group, large group. Any group. All right. And do you get anxious when you're walking into the room? Do you get anxious once you're in the room, once you start speaking? I get anxious when I have to get, I can walk into the room, but I only get, like, I get anxious when I have to stand up and talk to a group of people. Okay. And you talked a little bit about what's happening for your body. So you're feeling sweating. I'm getting sweaty. My heart is racing. My mouth will get dry. And do you have any sense of what's going through your mind as you're feeling anxious about public speaking? I'm worried about what they will think about me. I'm worried about what I'll say. I'm, I'm concerned about if I say the wrong thing. Okay. So let's break some of those down. That's really helpful that you're able to see all of those things. So you're worried about what they'll think about you. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I'm worried that they like they won't like the outfit I'm wearing. That they're I'm worried that they won't think I'm very smart. I'm worried that they they might know something that I don't know, and I'll look foolish in front of my peers and my boss. Okay. And of those thoughts that you just shared with me, are any of them in particular most upsetting for you? They're all upsetting. Okay, all upsetting. So, in terms of, I think you said one that I imagine is a hard one is I worry that they won't think I'm smart. Did I yes. that? Okay. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I'm worried that. And, and what's confusing to me is I, I'm very accomplished. I have all of these business-related things that I do, and my reports are really well-received. But I have this fear that I am not as, as competent as people think I am. Hmm, okay. So it sounds like you have some reason to believe that they think you're competent, but then you're also concerned that there are other situations. Or- well, I'm worried that they will, they'll think I'm inc- incompetent, that yeah. it's almost an, an imposter syndrome where they'll discover that really I'm not as good as they think I am. Okay. Um, and do you think that they have reason to believe that you are good? Well, I have a very long track record of, of performing very well. Mm, okay. So it sounds like in that moment, as you're public speaking, your mind is going to this place of what if they think I'm an imposter and all of those things that are good about what I do in my job will sort of be flushed down the drain because I'll talk and I won't do such a great job. And yes. Okay. And some of the other thoughts that you mentioned, um, what other thoughts are going through your mind? Um, I'm worried that they won't like the outfit I'm wearing. I'm worried that they won't like the way that I'm speaking. I'm worried that I will either talk too long or too short. I'm worried that I'll be boring. Okay. So what I'm hearing is a lot of it is about style of your speaking. Correct. Things that you're coming, ways that you're coming off. Okay. And what would be the implications of that? So let's say they don't really like the way you're dressed or that they think that you're speaking too fast. Why would that be bad? Well, that would be bad because then that could lead to a poor job performance review. It could lead to maybe social isolation. No one will want to talk to me. Hmm. And have you ever gotten feedback on any of your presentations? Everyone says my presentations are great. Okay. Everyone says your presentations are great, but you're questioning. But they might be lying to me. Oh, okay. Why would they be lying to you? I don't know, but I'm I'm concerned that they just might be overly kind. And are you privy to your, um, your evaluations? Yes. Okay. And what do they say? They're all very good. Okay. 
So they're all very good. So it sounds like there's evidence to suggest that things are going well and that they think appropriately of you, but that you're questioning whether or not that's true. Yes. Okay, gotcha. And you're worried about how a potential poor performance might impact your job negatively. Yes, because I've had such a positive job review reports for so long. I'm, I'm worried that what, what would happen if I had got a bad review? Okay. Tell, can you tell me more about that? Well, that it would ruin the streak of good reviews. Mm, okay. Do you know anyone else who is anxious giving public speaking with, along with you and your, and your group? No, I think everyone else is very confident and they come across as very smooth. So everyone else seems to be totally at ease except for me. Okay. Has anyone ever told you that they've been anxious public speaking? No, we, I, I never discuss it or ask anyone. To take a guess, would you imagine that anyone else gets anxious speaking publicly? No, I think I'm the only person in the world. Okay, only person. Okay. And if you were to plant a camera in your room as you were giving a speech, what do you think you would look like? Um, that's hard to say. I think that I would imagine myself fumbling over my words. I'd imagine myself fidgeting. I'd imagine myself not coming across as as articulately as I want to. And would giving one presentation that you weren't very happy with, do you think that that would undermine your previous track record? It could. Okay, how so? Well, if I've had a perfect track record and I have a negative one, then that would mean I don't have a perfect track record. And what does less than perfect look like for you? Less than perfect means I don't have a perfect score. Mm -hmm. And do you want to maintain perfection or is like 98%? No, it has to be perfect. Okay. Chris, can I pause it this Yes. So I think this is this is awesome because you touched on a couple of important things. So I don't really know because I like this is this is really difficult for me because I don't have a fear of public speaking. So I'm just imagining what it would be like. So I don't really know if that's that's the typical response. It is actually. It's totally okay, a typical response and something we hear very very often. So the reason I wanted to pause is because I I actually kind of took it in a couple different disparate directions and I was doing a therapy session. It would be look a little bit differently, but. I think what you touched on was a couple of important things. So one was the fear of public speaking in and of itself, which is can be consistent with social phobia or social anxiety disorder is how do they think I'm going to look? And what if they um, criticize the way I'm dressing? And what if they're not happy with the way I'm speaking and all of those? And the feared consequence of everything that you talked about was I'm going to get a poor evaluation. But then there's this other piece that you kind of touched on at the end that I start to ask a little bit of questions about, which is the perfectionism piece, which can be related to social anxiety disorder, but also can be sort of a separate thing in and of itself. And oftentimes people will find that perfectionism is something that they strive for and anything less than perfect is absolutely unacceptable or is maybe not absolutely unacceptable, but is very, very terrifying. And so what I would do in treatment is I kind of take a look at both of those things. What I try to do in this very brief role play with you is get a sense of what your feared consequences are. So what do you think is going to happen if your presentation is less than perfect? Also, what I asked is I asked questions about what do you think other people are thinking or how do you feel or how do you believe other people feel when they're giving a presentation? The reason that's important, especially in social anxiety disorder or especially in a fear of public speaking, is that oftentimes, more often than not, people are actually doing a much, much better job than they think they are and they're in their mind in a totally different place. So they can feel themselves with their heart racing or they feel like um, their face is flushed or things like that. But to the outside world, they look totally confident or totally normal. And this is what's important in 
social phobia or social anxiety disorder is sort of getting a sense of how your perception of yourself is different than potentially other people might see you. And so getting a sense of that is important, but also getting a sense of the fact that you were saying that you think that you're the only person who has ever felt anxious giving a public speaking engagement, Mm -hmm. when in fact, probably you are not. There's this joke that people would rather be in a coffin than giving a eulogy, which is that the fear of public speaking is probably one of the most significant forms of anxiety regardless of whether or not you have a disorder or not. So that's kind of important is because a lot of times people think that they're the only one when in fact they're not the only one. If I were actually treating you for social phobia or for a fear of public speaking, which can be separate, what I would actually do is we would do exposure therapy in addition to what I was just doing now, which is basically where we would create a list of all of the different things that make you anxious from lowest to highest. And then very, very slowly, I would have you start to practice those things, which people might say, oh my gosh, that sounds terrifying. Why would I want to practice things that make me anxious? And the idea behind this is that what oftentimes happens is people think that these things that are anxiety provoking are actually dangerous or are going to hurt them in some way or are going to impact their job. And so slowly working yourself up to being able to do these things very, very slowly starts to teach, or not so slowly actually, starts to teach your mind and your body that these things are actually not quite as dangerous or not quite as bad as you might think they are. And it starts to take the edge off of these practices a little bit. So I would, in therapy, I would do a lot of this talking piece of getting a sense of what's going on and asking you a lot of questions, and then also start to have you uh, practice some of these things through exposure. So I will tell you, I, I, it was interesting having you ask me the questions because I was really putting myself in the place of someone who has a fear of public speaking. And I can tell you speaking to, I've interviewed mostly um, physicians on this podcast and a significant number of them have that imposter syndrome, which is where I was getting the, the characteristics from. But it's shockingly common. And when people tell me they have it, it, it really doesn't make any sense because they come across as very articulate and very competent. And clearly they are because they're leaders in their field, but they still have this sense of being in the imposter syndrome. Yes. And it's true among psychologists as well, actually, quite common. I think for a lot of us in the field of mental health or really other fields as well, I hear this from other types of professionals and medicine and things like that, is people question themselves a lot and they question whether or not they're as good as other people think that they are. And it can be terrifying for them to think that maybe they're not as good or that the praise they've received is undue or is undeserved. So what was the third thing you talked about? There was cognitive behavioral therapy, then there's the exposure therapy. And what was the last one? So this is called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, I wouldn't say it's new, new, but it's newer than cognitive behavioral therapy and sort of an offshoot of that, which is a therapy that basically helps people learn to sit with their anxiety rather to rather than to kind of take it away or change the way that they're thinking. And there's a lot of mindfulness that's involved and a lot of values works that's involved trying to figure out the values in your life that are important to you and how your anxiety is impacting your ability to live in line with your values. And a big piece of it is basically learning how to separate yourself from your thoughts, especially the thoughts that are not so helpful for you, and to sort of sit with the anxiety and learn that anxiety is actually not dangerous and is not bad. And it's basically to change your relationship with anxiety, which can oftentimes lead you to feel a little bit more stable and sort of in control and, and well in that way. Um, so how so- would that look with the, the, the situation that I gave you? If we were back in that role-playing situation, what would, what would that acceptance and, and mindfulness look like? 
So there, yeah, so there are a couple pieces. So one is I would have you do practice some mindfulness exercises, basically to learn what's going through your mind, through your body as you're feeling anxious in that moment, which we kind of clarify exactly what mindfulness is and what that looks like for anyone that doesn't know. So mindfulness is this idea of basically being aware of what's happening to you presently in your mind, in your body and in your space around you. So it's basically this concept of awareness. So we can oftentimes get stuck in different places. We can be very future oriented where we're thinking about all of the things that we need to do later that day or what could possibly go wrong in our future or past oriented which is where we're thinking about things that went wrong or I wish I did this differently or etc whatever that might look like for anyone in particular but what we want to do is we kind of want to take ourselves out of our past and out of our present and, in, and root ourselves in our in our present. I'm sorry, out of the past and out of the future and root ourselves in the present. So mindfulness is all about sort of taking off autopilot and sitting presently, thinking about how you're feeling in this moment, what thoughts are going through your mind and how you're feeling in your body. That's really interesting. I don't know why, but I'm thinking about this right now. So I was, for some reason, I'm thinking about Star Wars and Yoda with Luke Skywalker. And he almost did a cognitive behavioral therapy with him where he had to like talk through his, his thoughts and his feelings. And he, then he slowly built him up over his training to... I don't, have you seen Star Wars? Yes. Okay. Slowly built him up over the course of his training. But throughout his entire training, Yoda kept like poking at him with his stick saying, you need to focus on the now and what's happening now. Like stop looking at the future and worrying about the future, but focus on what you're doing here and today. Well, Yoda had a tremendous amount of wisdom about him. So it doesn't... <laughs> so, <laughs> like, it just, I don't know why that sequence kind of popped in my head. So... Yeah, that's so neat. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great point. Thank you for accepting my my uh, nerdy Yoda reference. So, all right. So for the mindfulness then, so I'd really, you'd get me to really just think about what I was thinking. Why was I anxious? What's going on around me when I'm public speaking? So that's a sort of a big piece of it is being, is awareness. Really insight or knowledge is power. Once you have that, it can really help you guide yourself in, in any which direction that you need to be going in towards. And another piece that's sort of critical in acceptance and commitment therapy is basically recognizing that thoughts are just thoughts. Sometimes thoughts are very valuable and sometimes thoughts are a little bit less valuable or a little less meaningful. And we don't need to take stock from every single thought that comes through our mind because we have all kinds of different thoughts. And there's a very wide collection of thoughts that are going through our mind at any given day or moment or anything like that. And some are more valuable and some are are not so valuable. And how do you differentiate between valuable thoughts and not valuable thoughts? So there are a couple different ways that you can do this. One is looking at thoughts that are in line with what your value system is. So if your value system is, I like to be a very hard worker, that can be one. Or um, my my family is very important to me, that can be another value. And thinking about whether or not your thoughts will help you achieve whatever goal you have or live in line with your values can be very important. Also, understanding whether or not your thoughts are realistic or not. And this is a little bit more of a feature of cognitive behavioral therapy, but what we want to sort of recognize is that sometimes our thoughts can get a little bit carried away. And if a thought is a little bit too carried away, maybe it's not so helpful for us. Or if it's bringing to us to a place where we're feeling stuck or it's bringing us to that freeze state, then that can be a thought that's not so helpful for us. And when you're working with a client, how do you help them differentiate a useful value system and a not useful value system because I think anyone listening can think of people with value systems that are probably not healthy value systems. How do you steer them into a healthy path? 
because just because your value system is not their value system does not mean their value system is obviously wrong. I think there's some extreme value systems like say someone feels the need to like they have to have a very large house and they have to have a very expensive car and they will put themselves in extreme debt, but they say really want to keep up appearances, et cetera. That's just a simple example. How do you steer their value system? Or do you? It depends on whether or not there's potential harm that comes into it. And I think the first step is, for the most part, to really value people's value system. But the other piece is really to think about harm or danger. And so, for instance, in that situation, if a person says, you know, I am really interested in having all of these different luxuries and things like that, I might say, okay, that's totally reasonable. That's totally fair. Does it ever get you into trouble or does it ever bring you into a situation where it could be potentially harmful for you? And if they were to say, well, sometimes I can get into debt, then I would say, okay, are there ways in which that debt could potentially be detrimental to you? No pun intended. And they would say, well, yeah, I mean, potentially I could lose money for my kids' college you know, funds or it could cause me problems with my workplace or things like that. Then I would say, okay, so it sounds like there are two values here that are potentially conflicting. Is there a way that we can resolve that conflict or value both value systems in a way that they're not potentially harming one or another? And so what I would always do is get a sense of, is their value going to be detrimental to another value of theirs? And if they said, you know, having a savings account or paying for my kid's college fund or having food on the table or having um, emergency money for anything that could happen in the future, if those are values of theirs as well, then I would take a look at the values as a composite and say, are any of these in conflict with each other? So what's coming across is there's definitely a skill set variance in psychologists. So like all things, they're going to be better psychologists or more helpful psychologists, I should say, and not as helpful as psychologists. What are some of the recommendations that you can give if someone is looking to find a therapist to help them with anxiety, depression, PTSD, or a whole host of other psychological issues? Yeah, so I think one is you can get a little bit of a sense of what their credentialing is and what their training is. I think that sometimes that can be hard because you don't know necessarily if, if their training is good, especially if you're not familiar with where they trained and what they worked in. But getting a sense of the types of people that they've worked in, uh, worked with, the settings that they've worked in can be really important. Getting a sense of what their style is and what mode of therapy they practice in can be important. There are many, many different ways in which a person might practice psychology or practice therapy. And so getting a sense of what their style is can be very important. You can even talk with different people and consult with different people before you settle on one. What I would always say is always try and have a consult call with someone. If you're looking, if you're finding someone online and you say, oh, it sounds like they might be interesting or they might be able to help me, try and request a consult call. Really any self-respecting professional in this field would do that and see how it feels to, to talk with them and get a sense of, do they think, do you think that this person can help me? And also give it a try for a couple sessions. And if it doesn't work, if it doesn't feel like it's right for you, you can always switch. And so having a match with your therapist or your psychologist can be really important because this is a person that you should feel comfortable and safe with. And if you don't feel comfortable and safe talking with that person, or if you don't feel like they're skilled enough to be able to help you, that's important. On the flip side, I would say also don't try and um, drop out too quickly or switch too quickly because you want to give someone the chance to be able to help you. But I'd say definitely feel free to do your research. Speak with a couple different people if you so choose before you make your first appointment. Get a little bit of sense of what they trained in previously and whether or not you fit the molds of some of the things that they've worked on in the past. 
Do you do telehealth or is it only in person in New York? I do telehealth, yes. But I, I practice, I only see people who live in New York because I'm licensed in New York. So hopefully I will become licensed in a couple other local states in the future. Um, but at this moment, I only work in New York. Sure. So, so how, are, how can people get in touch with you? So people can get in touch with me. I do have a Twitter account. So I'm Dr. Jessica B. Stern, S-T-E-R-N on Twitter. So you can find me there. Please feel free to reach out to me. Send me any messages that you'd like. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and educating everyone on anxiety. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.